0: that you could all join us on this bank holiday weekend for this meeting. If you've joined us before, you know that this has been a series of fantastic meetings we've been having since the lockdown. If this is your first time, you picked a great meeting to join to. This meeting today is titled COVID Crisis and the Resistance in the Global South. Really exciting stuff. Um, my name is Elizabeth Adolfo. I'm a South a Socialist Worker Party member from South London, and today I will be chairing this meeting. So this meeting we've got three fantastic speakers for you today from all across the globe we've got Hamza Humushen who is a London-based um, Algerian activist and journalist he's the founding member of the Algerian solidarity campaign and he currently works in the transnational institute we also have Jechi Tanu who is um, part of our sister organization in based in Ghana and he also works with the hand and brain collective and we have Talat Ahmed who is the senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and is also the author of Mahatma Gandhi's Experiments on Civil Disobedience. So three fantastic speakers for you today. We hope that you will really enjoy this meeting. We want this meeting to be interactive. We want to hear your thoughts. Um, Our panel later on in the meeting will be able to answer some questions. So please make sure that you are sharing, you're liking, and you're getting your comments and questions through, and hopefully we can answer some of those. Um, But without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, who is Jeche. And like I said, he's speaking to us all the way from Ghana, as he's part of our sister organization over there, and he also works in the Hand and Brain Collective. So I'll take it over to you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Comrade Chair Elizabeth, and uh, to the Socialist Workers' Party comrades who, who are organizing this. Um, it's an I think it's an important, obviously, an important time to share ideas about what is happening in the midst of a global crisis, a global crisis which has a, you know, various dimensions, but the most immediate is of course, the public health emergency in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Of course, uh, as is the nature of uh, the global system, things happen on a very uneven level. And so when we look at the incidence of uh, the virus and the rate of infection, the rate of deaths, we see that uh, at the moment, um, the OECD countries, the countries of the global north, are those who have taken the the biggest hits in terms of infections and in terms of deaths and so on. I think more than 75% of uh, people who of infections and of deaths have happened in uh, the global north and another 10 or 15% in countries like China, Iran, and so on. And the majority of the global south, 60 or more countries, they account for about three or 4% of the levels of incidence and deaths so far. And in the case of Africa, of course, we are well behind the curve, probably, you know, uh, furthest behind, whatever that means. But clearly, in terms of the infection and the death rate, um, so far we have not been at the, uh, at the center of the storm. And of course, many of you will be aware that it has led many commentators to give a very benign you know, uh, spin on what is happening. On the one hand, the weather in Africa is too hot. Uh, the population is very young. The, mean, the median population of Africa is only 19 years old. Um, there are very few old people, less than 3% of the entire population are above 75 or 80. Um, You know, a whole range, it is disconnected, especially the rural parts of Africa are disconnected from the global traffic and so on and so forth. And a whole range of different factors and including some which sound fairly positive. For example, the case has been made that the lessons that have been learned in the process of dealing with previous epidemics, uh, most recently the Ebola uh, epidemic that broke out in uh, West Africa from 2013 to 2016 is a case in point. As we speak, there are ongoing epidemics of various kinds. Including once again Ebola in places like uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Central Africa, but also things like uh, you know uh, um, Lassa fever in Nigeria, cerebral spinal meningitis in Ghana, and so on and so forth. Many of which are killing more people than the COVID uh, nineteen, the coronavirus itself. So for that reason, I think that there are those who are hoping that this, you know, Africa may miss the worst, uh, you know, uh, uh, of this, and that for the first time in a long time, we will not be the source of the greatest tragedy or the source of the greatest crisis in a, in a global uh, you know in, in, in this kind of global context already there were people in africa who were if you like somewhat relieved that uh, unlike ebola and so on this this time the problem didn't break out in africa we are not the ones spreading the disease and yet somehow we face the fact that uh, in places like china and other parts of the world you know the uh, black anti black racism has followed hot on the heels of anti chinese racism and so on the whole, you know, xenophobic racist trend, we have been at the butt of of that as well. As recently as, uh, so as we speak today, there's only about 74, well not only, the 75, just shy of 75,000 infections in in, in Africa. The World Health Health Organization released a report, I think it was uh, early May, May 7th or so, which projected that uh, in the first year of the pandemic, there might still be 190,000 people who die from it in Africa. Now that will be anywhere in the world, that would be a huge thing. In Africa, it would be utterly devastating because obviously we understand, all of us would understand quite clearly that the impact of the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic intersects with the conditions that capitalism continues to reproduce and perpetrates in different parts of the world on an uneven uh, basis. So the poverty in Africa, uh, as the poorest part of the the poorest region in the world, that poverty is expressed in terms of health systems, for example. So how Africa has the lowest uh, uh, per capita uh, public expenditure on health per head. I think it's about, at the moment, it's about what would be the equivalent of 31 pounds sterling per year. If, tonight, if they, you, you guys went on lockdown and you went to the pub, I think you managed to spend 31 pounds in, in a few short minutes. Um, um, that is per head per, per year. There's only about three, three or four doctors to 10,000 uh, uh, 10, uh, uh, population. There's very few emergency beds and so on and so forth. And as we saw in the case of uh, Ebola, anytime that there's a pandemic of this sort, every time that there's a public health emergency of this sort, it has a knock on effect throughout the health system, no matter the incidence of the direct transmissions, no matter the, inc- I- I- inc- uh, the, you know, the incidence of uh, direct, uh, directly related deaths and so on. So in the case of uh, Ebola, for example, we found a complete collapse in um, maternal care across not just the three countries that were affected, but further afield uh, in, in, uh, in uh, West Africa. In places like Ghana, you are beginning to see that hospital attendance rates are much lower than they used to be. Not only because people, because of the lockdown or conditions that people may, may fear, you know, being affected, uh, infected in hospitals and so on, but it's also because of the fact that um, you know the the healthcare system itself is beginning to pass on costs that you know on, onto people. The amounts of uh, you know supply of of critical uh, uh, drugs, for example, HIV and antiretroviral drugs. A lot of uh, people are not getting it anymore. A lot of people are forced to be to pay for things that they, 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 you know, they, they, they were not previously paying for and, and, and so on. And of course, we find that this is a situation which speaks not simply to the crisis of the fact that these are poor countries with small budgets and so on, but it speaks to the policy framework that exists in these countries. These countries too are part of neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, part of the fact that the, the system exists to promote the, the sectors of the economy and the types of economic activity that maximizes profit and cuts back on, on those sectors that do not generate immediate profit. Healthcare, many parts of, uh, aspects of healthcare are, are, are one, uh, one, one case in point. And, it, it, and whenever you find a, a crisis that is unfolding on this scale, you find that that is one of the first consequences of, of, uh, of, of those crises, the cutbacks in, in these, uh, these crises. But it's important to, to, to situate, as I was saying, this, situa- this, uh, 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 this in the context of, uh, of capitalism as it, as it operates, as it functions in Africa itself. We all know, for example, that prior to the crisis, one of the manifestations of the crisis has been the collapse of strategic, uh, 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 prices of strategic commodities in the international market, such as oil. Now, obviously that started before the pandemic because of the price issues between Saudi Arabia, Russia, so on and so forth, people know about it, we don't need to get into it. But in, in, a, con- in, a, in a continent like Africa, which is so highly dependent on raw material exports as, the, as its lifeline, as its main contribute, contribution to the international economy. This means that the, the effects of, of, of the, the, the economic effects will be, are devastating already. A country like Nigeria, which is Africa's biggest economy is projected to have, have a GDP decline of 23% or 24% this year. Africa as a whole is supposed to go into a, 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 the, a, the growth, African growth rate will decline to about minus 1.6%. This is the lowest rate ever on record. Since February, there has been levels of capital flight from Africa, highest, higher in terms of ratio than any continent in the world, and is the highest uh, uh, kind of outflow on, on record as well. So if you add the terms of trade shock from the, the collapse of commodity prices, you add the flight of capital to safe havens and to the dollar and, and, and so on and so forth, then you find that this unevenness, the, the, this which concentrates poverty and underdevelopment in parts of the world means that the, the, the problems that everybody faces in the world are more deeply exacerbated uh, in, 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 in places like Africa as well. And therefore it also means that going that in situating the, the, the COVID-19 crisis in the broader context, of economic relations, of who gets what, who decides what is produced on what basis, who are the beneficiaries, who, uh, who are the losers and, and so on and so forth. It's important that we also understand that in going forward, a lot of the crises that I've, I've just touched upon will become exacerbated. African countries will have to export more and more primary commodities to make up for the collapse in prices, that's one. That means more environmental degradation, that means that more of the of the problems that people have in terms of the economic and cont- the environmental contamination which is part of the, the process of uh, you know pandemic uh, viruses like uh, uh, the corona virus taking root will become exacerbated whether it's respiratory diseases in north africa whether it's you know problems associated with hiv in southern africa and, and so on whether it's the, the problems of uh, you know the crossover between animal and uh, bat infested bat populations as we saw in the case of Ebola because of deforestation right across from central africa into, into West Africa and so on, you will find an intensification of, 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 this type of these type of uh, uh, relations an intensification of that type of uh, uh, production for profit. It will also mean an intensification of the efforts and the incentives that are given to the global ruling class to attract capital back into Africa. That all the capital that has gone out, there has to be a way to find that, you know, that, that it's is attracted back. So African countries, despite their complaints about you know, being in debt, and despite their partial, uh, you know, requests for partial debt relief and and so on and so forth, are also eager not to lose access to international capital. They are also eager not to lose access to the international financial markets. And that is really their priority. They will bend over backwards to ensure that this access is protected, even if it means imposing higher costs on their population, even if it means that they're, you know, know, uh, disinvesting in jobs in uh, in sectors such as electricity, in health, in water, and, and, and so on. So that when we look at the the, the, the sweep of this global unevenness, it, it is very easy for people to interpret that unevenness simply as a mark of, of racism. As I said, it is very easy to see it simply from the lens of global South versus, versus global North. After all, even when it comes to the what is required to treat the, 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 the this particular health crisis, whether it is uh, you know uh, PPEs for, for, for frontline health staff, whether it is uh, uh, you know masks, whichever, whether it is reagents for testing whichever way it is, the countries of the global north are monopolizing those markets, they're monopolizing the supplies, and so on. So it is very easy for people to see it in the north-south situation. But I think it's important to understand also that we're dealing with a system because of the interlinkages involved, because of the dependency of African ruling classes themselves on those global circuits of profits, and the the, the ways in which they participate in the exploitation of labor in Africa, along with in partnership with with the uh, global capital and so on. It's important to see why the the, the processes of this natural resource exploitation, the process of the intensification of uh, labor exploitation, the exploitation of human beings, the process of exploitation of women's labor, for example, those who will bear the brunt of the social reproduction crisis, the crisis in healthcare delivery, and so on and so forth. It's important to see how all these things play out. And in Africa, we've had a challenge. The challenge has been that you have, just like most of the, the global South, you have a situation where in a lot of places, the, 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 those who have a classical image of the working class as people who go to work eight to five or whatever it is and so on and so forth, doesn't necessarily always fit. We have this, what is called this whole huge informal sector. And there are many debates about what this informal sector means. A lot of people think that it's simply a haven for self-employment and, and, and you know, so on and so forth. There are a lot of people who, who, who dismiss that uh, entirely that actually it's a mask for something else. And that people who are in the informal sector are also very much at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to the to, to their, their, their participation in the distribution of lesser global supply chains uh, in, in, in the case of retail, for example. The, the millions of youth who crowd the streets in Africa who are selling everything from dog chains to condoms to false, to to pharmaceutical products, to mobile phone parts, are also therefore delivering distribution services for those global brands and those global multinationals which actually produce those commodities themselves. But without the benefit of a a full-time job, without the benefit of pay, health benefits, pensions, social security payments, and so on and so forth. So it's important to understand that the spectrum of those through which surplus value is being pumped in their their various activities in, in the economy itself, whether it's in the natural resource production sector, whether it's in the the services sector, like I've just described, trade, uh, um, uh, telecommunications, uh, 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 and so on, uh, uh, retail trade uh, and so on. It's important to to understand that the the, the evolution of the working class in Africa poses a problem, a a challenge for socialists wherever we are. It poses a a challenge for those whose primary objective in terms of resistance and in terms of transformation, in terms of alternatives to the system is to promote the unity of of the working class as a whole and to put the project of the united working class first and foremost, rather than that of any one of the sections. When you are confronted with a situation where the formal working class is as small as it is in Africa. A lot of people, you know, would rather bend to different types of populisms or make make arguments about a particular exceptionalism that that applies to this situation. I don't think that, you know, uh, um, um, uh, hopefully in the discussion we can pick some of those things. I don't think that actually uh, um, uh, those things, uh, uh, you know, are fully true. And the reason why they're not fully true is this is the point I want to end on. They're not fully true because when you look at the pattern of resistance that has occurred in the context of COVID-19, and there has been, Health workers going on strike, whether it's in Malawi uh, for for PPEs, whether it's in Nigeria, whether it's in you know uh, teachers go uh, resisting in Ghana. Three teachers' unions, education sector unions, have come together to resist the government's attempt to, to open uh, uh, schools uh, 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 very quickly, and so on and so forth. Many of the struggles that you see everywhere in the world have 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 also occurred in a widespread way in Africa. But what it has also occurred in the in the communities that were being locked down as a result of, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, and are suffering as a result of deprivation because of the conditions of their livelihood uh, 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 and so on. But what you find is that the protests that occur in the communities are less organized and have less systemic resonance than those which occur among the organized w- w- working class in organized workplaces uh, and so on. That tells us that we have to find a way to, to, to understand how the strategic power of different sections of the working class combine together. We also have to understand the ways in which the setting the, 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 the demands will benefit everybody in the working class. An approach which says that we need community health, but we need to guarantee livelihoods in the community on the basis of people talk about universal basic income, for example, what, by which in our sense ought to mean a, 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 a bottom up process by which everybody is guaranteed livelihood, is that currently productive employment and income assessments based on those productive employments is guaranteed a minimum basket of services in terms of health, in terms of education, in terms of transport, in terms of food, and so on and so forth. And that we are able to ensure that the local production of food, the local production of needed essential services and the local production of different you know material goods are on the basis of a redistribution from the top of society to the bottom of society. That uh, it depends on workers win, winning better wages. It depends on farmers getting better incomes. It depends on a, a investments in the process through which uh, you know, uh, r- uh, the, 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 the rural uh, uh, production can, uh, and urban production can mutually sustain and mutually uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, promote I- each other. And when we, it is only in the context of that that we can begin to actually address some of the the challenges that might exist by way of ethnic divisions, by way of divisions according to migrant labor, cross-border labor, which comes in seasonally, uh, uh, but as a moment is shut out or is criminalized because of the the, the lockdowns and the the closure of of borders and so on and so forth. It's also on that basis that we can have a thoroughly, uh, you know, a a, 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 a thoroughgoing agenda for women's liberation and implant that within the working class in, in, in places like Africa. Because in the global South, we also have to say, that some of the transitions that have taken place in terms of social rights, in terms of fighting for you know a certain agenda, have not necessarily happened in Africa. You are, you, even though there are movements against xenophobia and so on, you do not have full-blown movements against ethnic politics and so on, the way you see anti-racism function in Britain, for example. All the kind of ways in which you know socialists in, in uh, uh, Europe you know embed the question of liber- women's liberation. At the centre, and you know, as an indivisible part of what they do, those are the kinds of things that we need to do, tied to the material interests that 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 uh, you can unite the the, the working uh, classes as a whole, and tied to the way in which we challenge capital uh, locally and internationally as well. And therefore, a new internationalism is also required for us to fight th- 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 this process as well. Let me stop here. I think I've probably taken a bit more of my time than I should have, but you know, yeah.
0: Thank you so much, that was absolutely brilliant. That was such a well-rounded analysis of the situation that's going on in Africa. So thank you very much. I can see that online, we've got about 350 people watching us. We want to keep that up. We want to get that more. So please make sure that you are liking and sharing this across to all your friends and across your platforms. We also want this to be a discussion. Our panelists really want to answer some of your questions. So make sure you're submitting your thoughts, your questions, even if you think they could be like really short, doesn't matter, we want to hear what you guys have To say, so please submit those through. Um, I'd like to bring in our next speaker. I'm going to bring in Hamza Hamza Hmushin, who is the London based acti- Algerian activist and journalist. Um, he currently works for the Transnational Institute. Hamza, what's your analysis of this situation?
2: Thanks, Elizabeth, for the introduction. And thanks for SWP for giving me the opportunity to speak about the Algerian uprising, which has been a truly historic event my presentation would be a bit different. So I'll start with the genesis of the Algerian uprising. So I prepared um, a few slides with you just to share a few pictures so people can follow. Yeah. So the people won the first battle in their struggle to radically overhaul the system in early April, 2019. Abdulaziz Bouteflika, um, the alien president for the past 20 years was forced to abdicate after more than six weeks of street protests and a reconfiguration of alliances within the ruling classes. What started as a rejection of the candidacy of a physically unfit octogenarian president has transformed um, in face of the obstinacy and deceptive ploys of the ruling elites into a united rejection of the ruling system with demands for radical democratic change, freedom and justice. For more than a year and since Friday 22nd February 2019 and despite all obstacles and attempts to break the, the movement, millions of people young and old, men and women from different social classes, have taken to the streets in an inspiring uprising, reappropriating long confiscated public space. Historic Friday marches, followed by protests in several sectors, united people in this popular movement um, or what Algerians call hirak. The revolutionary movement in Algeria Release the boundless creativity of the popular genius. One chanting, we woke up and you will pay, the people have been expressing their newly discovered political will. This liberatory process is at the same time a transformational one. And we can witness this in the euphoria, energy, creativity, confidence. Humor and joy that this movement has inspired after decades of social and political suppression. What makes this movement really unique is its massive scale, peaceful character and national spread, including in the marginalized South. The movement is also characterized by a significant participation of women and young people. One can also see this uprising as the continuation of the anti-colonial struggle of the 50s and 60s. So many references have been made in the various protests and marches to the Algerian anti-colonial revolution and its martyrs, reaffirming that formal independence has no meaning without popular and national sovereignty. These anti-colonial sentiments are reasserted by a staunch hostility to any foreign interference and imperialist intervention and by an unshakable solidarity with Palestinians in the permanent presence of the Palestinian flag alongside the Algerian one. The Algerian uprising should be analyzed within the second wave of the Arab and African uprisings that started in 2010-2011. In this respect, I think that what's happening in Sudan, Algeria, Lebanon, and Iraq can be seen as the continuation of a revolutionary process in North Africa and West Asia a revolutionary process with ups and downs, gains and setbacks, and with different outcomes in various countries. It is worth noting that students, workers, especially those in the the education sector, independent trade unions, judges and lawyers have been playing a very important role in this mobilization as they participate and organize their own protests, call for strikes and keep the momentum going. So what are the political elements that gave rise to this popular movement? The country has been experiencing a political crisis for decades, in particular since the 1992 military coup and the ensuing brutal civil war. The most recent manifestations of this crisis are the direct results of politics of parasitic accumulation and entrenched corruption, enforced by a military oligarchic nexus that denies the Algerian people their right to self-determination and dispenses with popular legitimacy to the benefit of domestic and international capital. This crisis has been exacerbated by several factors, not in the least by the alien Butaflika's general absence from the political stage for the last six years, and by intra-elite, power struggles, which are symptomatic of the deep seated contradictions and instability of the current ruling bloc, which has opened up new spaces for resistance. So the decisive entrance of the people onto the political stage in 2019, effectively forced the military high command to distance itself from the presidency and intervene in order to safeguard the regime in place. The hierarch did not come from nowhere. It is the expression of decades of profound pain, anger and rejection of the repressive authoritarianism, suppression of freedoms, economic and social exclusions, as well as the lack of horizons, especially for the unemployed youth who are still risking their lives to reach the Northern shores of the Mediterranean. It is also important to say that the eruption of this popular anger is the result of an accumulation of struggles and acts of resistance that date back to the 80s, the most recent examples being the resident medical doctors' protests in 2018 and the anti-fracking uprisings of 2015. The uprising came at a time of an acute economic crisis characterized by crippling austerity measures following the decline of oil and gas export revenues since 2015, 2016. So in the midst of increasing popularization and employment and even development, corruption, the rationality of the current revolt and rebellion becomes absolutely clear. In my view, the causes of the revolt are fundamentally economic and are the results of more than three decades of neoliberal restructuring, the Bouteflika era being the most ultra liberal in Algeria's history. We cannot also fully appreciate the political situation in Algeria without scrutinizing foreign influences and interferences and apprehending the economic question from the angle of natural resource grabs and energy neo-colonialism. This includes the enormous concessions made to multinationals and the pressures coming from outside to exercise further liberalizations in order to remove all the restrictions to international capital and fully integrate Algeria into the global economy in a totally subordinate position. Throughout the last year, we've seen a radical evolution of slogans and demands. Within three months of the uprisings, what started as a narrow rejection of the fifth term transformed into they must all go, and to the chance we want a civilian, not a military state. Algeria is a republic, not a military barrack. The military high command attempted to divide, exhaust, and suffocate the movement mobilizing its media outlets and online propaganda and manipulation and continuing to use repressive methods towards protesters, including physical violence, arrests and imprisonment. By mid-October, the numbers of the street regained the levels of March and April. Slogans targeting the military high command and specifically the army chief of staff became common currency examples, generals to the trash bin and Algeria will be independent. Having aborted two presidential elections, the one in April in which Butaflika was running for a fifth term and the July 4th one, the popular movement unfortunately failed to halt the 12th December elections despite a huge boycott. However, on the same day of the elections, huge protests took place in various towns all over the country. And when the results were announced the next day, people went again to the streets to denounce the electoral charade. Where are we now? Due to the global health crisis, the Hiraq decided to hold its weekly protests in mid-March, 2020, after celebrating its first anniversary in February. But the amazing energy and dynamism created by this magnificent revolution has not disappeared. In fact, it metamorphosed into health campaigns and solidarity actions with the needy and most vulnerable in society during these difficult times. We have seen several initiatives of cleaning up and disinfecting public spaces, caravans of solidarity campaigns to raise awareness about the disease and other creative actions to keep the Hiraq's flame alive. Meanwhile, the authoritarian and reactionary regime is doubling down on its repressive actions. Many activists are being judicially harassed and several journalists have been jailed since the start of the lockdown. In total, dozens dozens of Hiraq activists are currently in jail, many of which were arrested for social media posts um, and were charged with threatening the integrity of national territory. The regime has not stopped at this. It continues tightening restrictions on online media by blocking access to several dissenting sites. The COVID-19 pandemic has in a way been a blessing to the ruling classes in Algeria. However, the popular movement has not said its last word yet. There is no doubt that the Iraq would resume after this pandemic subsides, because the same conditions that gave rise to it are still present if not exacerbated by the health crisis as well as by the crumbling oil prices. In this context, evocative of the calm before the storms, Algerians will not dig their own graves by halting the revolution halfway. I will finish by mentioning this new research report published by the MENA Solidarity Network called Trade Unions and the Algerian Uprising. And you could could have it online through the website of the MENA Solidarity Network. Thanks a lot.
0: Brilliant, thank you so much Hamza, that was fantastic. And I love a good PowerPoint. That's great visually to see everything that's going on in Algeria. Brilliant. Um, We've still got 350 people watching, which is fantastic, but we want some more. So please make sure that you are sharing, sharing, sharing and sharing again. It's such a brilliant meeting. You don't want your people to miss out. So um, make sure you can spread this across as many people as possible. And please make sure that you are still sending through your comments and your questions. We really want to get to answer as many of those as possible. Um, I will bring in our third and final speaker. Um, she is Talat Ahmed, and she is the senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, and she is also the author of Mahatma Gandhi: Experiments in Civil Disobedience. So, Talat, take it away.
3: Okay, thank you very much, Elizabeth, um, and, uh, and to the other two speakers. Um, yes, the impact of COVID across the global South really has been quite pronounced, and um, and it's quite interesting that with so much focus on Europe. Um, and the fact that cases appear to be so few by comparison, uh, people or particularly the media seem to want to ignore it in the West. I want to say um, something about India. Um, As Manny said, um, the the figures are much lower there in comparison to Britain. Um, So for example, um, there have been 125, over 125,000 cases um, of COVID that have been identified and the total number of deaths is under 4,000, so about 3,700. But what's very interesting is that 25,000 cases have been identified in the last four days inside of India. And this is as a result of the um, slight measures of easing on the lockdown that were announced by the Modi government. And the fact that there has been this huge spike of 25,000 cases that have been identified I think really is um, the beginnings of uh, giving a clue to what a catastrophe Covid can really be when its full force is felt across across the global south and particularly in a country like uh, like India with 1.3 billion um, of a population. Um, There are many aspects of um, coronavirus that about in, in India that I could talk about. I just want to mention two of them. Firstly, the plight of migrant labor, and secondly, the issue of um, Islamophobia. Um, people have probably seen a few weeks ago, uh, when the lockdown was, uh, was being announced in India back um, at the, uh, on the 23rd of March, um, that as a result of that lockdown, what you had was a scenario where literally in district after district, tens of thousands in city after city, these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands growing to millions of people of migrant laborers, who have lost everything. They have lost their jobs, they have lost their homes, they have lost their livelihoods. Um, it's interesting that Manny was talking about the informal sector inside of India the informal economy is set to compromise 92% of the total workforce. 92% of it is informal. And this informal sector includes a whole slew of of jobs. It includes people who are uh, rickshaw drivers, who are taxi drivers, um, people who are porters and cleaners and sweepers inside hotels, inside airports, inside restaurants. It includes people um, in markets who are um, selling vegetables, vegetable stall holders, um, people who are, sh- um, what's the phrase, uh, shine boys, for want of a better phrase, shoeshine men, and what have you. But it also includes people in the re- retail sector and um, contract laborers. And across India, um, the expansion that there has been in the economy, particularly in the last decade or so, has seen a massive growth. Um, of uh, of construction and um, construction sites all over huge cities. And of course, for that, it has been contract labor that has been brought in. And most of this labor, like a lot of the labor inside of Indian cities, is coming from small towns, but coming predominantly from tiny villages scattered all the way around, uh, around India. And these people have lost absolutely everything. There's no such thing as furloughing inside of India, um, there is absolutely no protection whatsoever, um, there's no meaningful welfare state in any shape or form, there's no such thing as insurance or um, unemployment benefit or any of these kinds of measures um, that uh, perhaps, you know, and quite rightly um, that in the West we take for granted and we would fight to defend. These kinds of things do not exist for Uh, for for people um, working in the sector in terms of migrant workers. Even the World Bank uh, has estimated that in India there are 40 million migrant labourers. Now that is a conservative estimate, but even so, 40 million is a huge figure indeed. And because these people have lost everything, they have absolutely no choice but to try and get back to their villages to at least be with their loved ones and to be with their families. Um, But, of course, because of the lockdown, all transport systems have been stopped. And so what we have seen is um, literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands migrant labourers trying to make their way on foot back to their own villages. And in some cases, this means people walking between 300 to 500, 600 kilometres back to their villages. If you are walking from Delhi and a lot of the migrant labor is coming from the middle of India in terms of Madhya Pradesh, you're talking about 450 kilometers that people are walking. And they are prepared to walk because they have absolutely no choice whatsoever. And again, here we see another incapacity of the Indian state to actually deal with this because there's no provision being made for these people. Um, People might've read um, a couple of weeks ago, there's a tragedy that took place just um, in Maharashtra Street, just outside of Mumbai, Mumbai, where um, a group of contract laborers who were trying to make their way home, um, they were so knackered that they just fell asleep on the railway tracks. And the reason they fell asleep on the railway tracks is because, of course, they understood that the trains were not operating. They were so tired, they just collapsed um, in a slumber and they were mowed down by a train. Why was a train suddenly traveling on these railway tracks? Not because it was transporting people, no, it was because it was transporting goods. Um, And 16 uh, migrant laborers died in that that accident, uh, which is completely needless. Uh, But this also shines a very powerful light on other aspects of deep inequality inside of Indian society, because the, um, the trains are operating to move goods around so business can operate, profits can continue to function, but trains are not able to operate in order to take migrant laborers back to their villages. Um, Absolute indictment on the Indian state and its ability to deal with with the mass of the population. And what we are witnessing is a humanitarian catastrophe here. The second issue is about Islamophobia. Now, inside of Indian society, Um, We're familiar with Islamophobia in in the West, but in Indian society, particularly in the last decade or so, the depth of anti-Muslim hatred and stereotyping and scapegoating is really got to an unprecedented level um, for anywhere in that part of the world. And of course, the whole issue of COVID has aligned itself to scapegoating. Um, And so therefore we hear and we see screaming headlines in uh, the press and on social media by leading commentators and politicians who talk about Muslims as being carriers of, uh, of, uh, of, um, of COVID. They're referred to as coronavirus jihadis. They're referred to as coronavirus terrorists. And that these people are threatening the very fabric of Indian society. Um, And this kind of labeling of Muslims as being carriers of uh, coronavirus um, has also been um, used. To attack people because, of course, we're now coming to the end of the month of Ramadan, um, and it's being used to attack Muslims who uh, have been accused of gathering in groups, of assembling in large numbers in mosques and what have you, which isn't true at all. Um, but nevertheless, this has been the kind of the kind of uh, horrific levels of scapegoating this has been this has been going on. Um, I want to turn now, if I can. To say something about um, a level of resistance inside of India, because I think that this is really quite important. And um, and in India, um, before COVID really hit and before the lockdown, you know, we can all be forgiven for thinking that uh, that nothing's really uh, that nothing was happening before the lockdown. But in India, there was a mass resistance campaign, and um, what um, and, and it was really magnified by a magnificent. Protests. It took place in Delhi at um, Shaheen Bagh, which is an area in uh, southeastern Delhi. It is a Muslim area. Here, you had a camp established by Muslim women. Uh, This camp lasted for 101 days. At its peak, it had over 100,000 people participating in a protest. There, this marks the single largest campaign of civil disobedience that we have seen in India in decades. Why were these women protesting? They were protesting against Modi's introduction of a Citizenship Amendment Act. This is a piece of legislation which is going to fast track citizenship to refugees that come from neighboring countries such as Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. It promises citizenship to everyone unless you're a Muslim. So if you're Hindu, if you're Parsi, if you're Sikh, if you're Christian, you will have citizenship, but not if you're a Muslim. And the BJP government has justified this on the basis that in Muslim majority countries such as Bangladesh or Afghanistan or Pakistan, you cannot be a refugee, you cannot be experiencing any persecution. If refugees were really the concern of the Modi government, then it's quite interesting that the Rohingya Muslims are not on that list to be given um, citizenship. It's interesting that Muslim minorities in Pakistan, uh, such as the Ahmadiyya community um, or um, Shia Muslims are not uh, covered by this. And therefore this is, uh, in, this is led quite rightly to the belief that this is a piece of legislation designed to stop Muslims um, from enjoying their rights and, um, and enjoying the rights of citizenship. The thing that's really uh, awful, and this is the reason why the women in the the camp decided to take action, because as Muslim women, they understand that this is going to affect their children, it's going to affect their, um, their, uh, their, their, their families, and therefore the fear that this is really about stripping away the rights and citizenship of India's Muslim population. Now in India, there are 200 million Muslims, and they all feel under mortal threat as a result of what is going on. This camp was absolutely amazing. It was a lightning rod to other movements as well. And so there were student movements that took place. There were protests on a number of campuses, both inside of Delhi, but also outside of Delhi. And also there were workers that also came out to show solidarity. Um, Just after Christmas, there uh, there was a general strike that took place, which involved Um, 10 different trade unions that were participating in this and I want to really end on coming back to this camp here of the women because the other thing that we have to bear in mind is that the the depth of Islamophobia inside of Indian society means that Muslim women have been subjected to being pilloried, they have been um, attacked for being backward, that they have no place in um, civil society that they basically are at the beck and call of their men. And yet what we saw in this Shaheen Bagh camp was women at the forefront. They were in the vanguard of going there, setting up a camp, establishing it, and being on protest for 101 days. And the only thing that put that camp to an end was the lockdown. And obviously they've had to respect the lockdown. But I think what I will leave everybody with is the notion, is the belief and understanding that this resistance has not gone away. All the issues that blight India before COVID happened are still very much alive. And those issues along with the way that COVID has been impacting upon India in this very deeply unequal way will come back to haunt the Modi government.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tala. That was brilliant. So fantastic to hear what's going on in India. Um, So we're now going to move on to the Q&A portion of our meeting. Um, I'm going to read out the first round of questions. We're going to have a second round of questions as well. So please feel free to keep on sending those in and keep on liking and sharing. So our first question comes from Kim and she says, what are the chances of an internationally coordinated movement like the youth climate movement against governments putting profit before health during this pandemic? Our second question comes from Sally. Sally says, China are sending personal protective equipment to Africa. They seem to be putting themselves in a strong position to become a more dominant imperialist nation when it's, this is over what is the view of the rise of China from the global south? And question three comes from Richard and he says the economic crash has led to a collapse in the price of oil worldwide. Many poor countries like Algeria are dependent on oil exports for revenue. What is the effect of the oil crash on ordinary people in the global south and what does this tell us about what transition, what transition to a sustainable world would look like. Um, We've also got some comments. We've only got got about 400 people watching, which is fantastic. Please make sure that you're continuing to liking and sharing this. Um, Tara says, amazing to hear about Algeria Hamza. So informative. A brilliant analysis. Solidarity. Judy says, inspiring to hear how revolts can change those people who are revolting. And Fraylene says, brilliant to hear about the resistance in Indian palates. So that's great. Just keep on interacting with us. Keep on sharing your thoughts and your comments and sending those questions through. Um, I'd like to start off with Hamza. If you can please take off um, on any of those questions, that would be brilliant.
2: Okay. Um, Thanks for these questions. Um, I'll try to answer maybe one or two of them and leave the others uh, for the other speakers. So I'll start with the oil crash. Um, I didn't get the time to go into the details um, around the Algerian economy, but uh, the Algerian economy is basically a rentier system that is based on extractivism, which is an economic model um, of accumulation and appropriation that makes the Algerian economy always dependent on international markets within that profoundly unjust international division of labor. So we export those cheap natural resources and we import all the rest, including our food. Um, And the COVID-19 actually exacerbated the the oil crash. Um, The oil crash started weeks before um, when Russia and Saudi Arabia um, decided to increase production. Um, So we saw the oil prices going uh, like to very low prices, including sometimes with oil producers paying buyers in order for them to take the oil from their hands because they don't have storage capacity. Um, The Algerian oil went down down under $20 and that really affects the balance um, of the economy given that the budget to be balanced needed around a price of the barrel at 50, 60 dollars. So as I said in in, in my presentations, the causes, the fundamental causes of the Algerian uprisings have been economic due to neoliberal restructuring and also to the rentier nature of of the economy. Um, So basically when the oil prices are high, um, the Algerian regime buys social peace, um, by distributing petrol dollars um, um, to society in free interest credits and loans, uh, ETC. But when the, lo- when the prices go down, then the problem start to wrap. And that happened before, happened in the 80s, when the first Algerian uprisings in 88 took place that was due to the oil crash of 86, Um, that led to protests and economic discontent, that led to the uprisings in 1988. And the same thing happened with the current uprising. Um, So in the current context of COVID-19, and due to the lockdown, um, of course, Algerians are not taken to the streets, uh, but the resistance is still there. And with oil prices that low, um, the Algerian regime does not have other solution, uh, so they have either to intensify those austerity measures, which lead to more impoverishment, unemployment, and social discontent, or go to international financial institutions and get get loans, which will which will have negative impacts on on the Algerian economy. Um, so the, the, this is around the the oil question regarding the the possibilities of building an international coordinated movement that put health or the public common before profits. I think, to be honest, I think this is is the moment for that kind of stuff. Because this COVID-19 crisis has shown the importance of public services um, and and their universality. Um, So, I see it as an opportunity um, to build an international movement that put those public public health services at the forefront um, and, and limit the powers of the big farmers. And, and actually the, 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 the a lot of campaigns are taking place around those patents and trying to limit big farmer patenting. Um, drugs or vaccines that um, that would ensure um, public health in the future.
0: Thank you for that, Hamza. That was great. I'm going to ask Jechi if you can come in and let us know your thoughts on those questions.
1: All right. Yeah, th- yeah. Thanks. Thanks uh, for the questions as well. Um, I-, I I want to touch on the question about China uh, because it's true that um, as uh, Uh, The 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 people have said uh, both the private sector people like Jack Ma the philanthropist like Bill Gates of uh, China so to speak people like Jack Ma and uh, the Chinese government have been supplying you know uh, PPEs and so on and so forth. Um, In the first place, I think that in itself speaks volumes about the nature of the system that we live in, because if uh, individuals like Jack Ma or Bill Gates or foreign governments can provide what 54 countries cannot do by way of masks or you know, chemicals for testing or PPEs, it, it tells you the level of inequality and the irrationality of the system as a whole. And that's one thing that stands out very starkly. But the other thing too, is that um, these uh, things are distributed also not simply on a, in a philanthropic way, but with a view to the alliances that are being built in places like Africa, because one of the, 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 the issues at, at play will be the geopolitical contestation and the geopolitical competition. For african resources going forward. that's one of the it this predates the covid but I, I i i i project that it will it will intensify some commentators for example have talked about the fact that what the covid does because of the scale of the economic crash that is beginning in africa what the covid crisis exposes is that the, the china's gamble is huge gamble on africa is an utter disaster that's what a lot of people are saying this is the period in which the Americans have come out quite clearly in the last month, Donald Trump's administration has come out quite clearly to raise, um, you know, to, 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 to offer billions and billions of dollars worth of funding for countries like Ethiopia. And it has done so explicitly by saying that it is, it is doing so to displace China from, from, that posi- from, that, from the position that it enjoys in terms of its relationship with Ethiopia. This is the period that uh, the Trump administration has launched what it calls a new free trade agreement with Kenya the U.S.-Kenya trade agreement, which again, you know, recaptures all the dreams that the Singapore on terms mad Brexiteers, neoliberal Brexiteers want to see in places like Britain, you know, that being incubated and giving a new lease of life in, in, in places like Africa. So there's no doubt in my mind that there will be a scramble. Already in terms of the oil crisis that Hamza talked about, the, the producer countries that do not have the best margins in terms of they're not the most cost efficient producers, so to speak, will suffer. Okay. Um, there are many oil operations that have collapsed or any would be oil projects in the pipeline that have come to a standstill. And those who have the deep pockets are going around buying up these uh, licenses, these uh, contracts, these deals at bargain bottom uh, prices. And even beyond that, in terms of, you know, uh, real assets within society. I mean, uh, some of my old schoolmates who are now investment lawyers and so on will tell you that there's a lot of private Chinese money, for example, and private American money floating around, seeking to buy up land, real estate, factories, you know, uh, a, a corner deals on drone delivery of medical supplies, you know, pharmaceutical contracts and so on and so forth. So the, 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 the kind of uh, uh, process by which, you know, there's, there's monopolistic interest in global supply chains and so on, I don't think it's going to go away. The process by which that becomes intensified as a result of the, of the, of, of the, of the intertwining of interests of multinational companies with their host governments as I've described in the case of the Americans and the Chinese is not going to go away and so on. And the uh, people's view of China is ambivalent and is contradictory according to different circumstances and and what plays out in in different countries. By and large, there was a period when the the boom in Chinese investment in Africa, the boom in Chinese trade seemed to offer uh, uh, options for African governments and African policymakers or sources of diversifying your export markets or sources of raising uh, investment capital and, and, and so on and so forth. That always, but that came on the back of the kind of neoliberal regime, the opening up of economy, the destruction of jobs, the deindustrialization the collapse of agriculture forced through by the likes of the world bank and the imf the british government and so on and so forth and it is this opened up space that it was a was period that allowed and, and you know and and, and and frames the kind of role that china plays within africa itself so although the chinese presence takes a different form although the chinese presence is also down to street level i mean you're not likely to find american or british corporate big bosses you might see them in a club down the road or squash club or whatever it is you know um, or in a nightclub or whatever it is, but you're not likely to see them walking down the road, back path, you know, sitting in the public buses, the matatus and so on. With, but you will see the Chinese doing that. You will see them selling chick by jiao with traders in the, in the market, for example. You, you know, all kinds of things. So the, the sense, and you will see them more in the rural areas as well. So this, because the, the kind of Chinese yeah, um, interest is also one that is not simply about big capital. It's also one that is not simply about private capital. It's about the state. It's about small capital. It's about labor and, and so on. So it is a lot more, if you like, many sided. And it comes in a, in a period when there's great, a great deal of flux in terms of you know, uh, economic relations in Africa and, and so on. So, people who have that ambivalent position. In the case of uh, um, uh, the, there the, the has been xenophobia against, you know, or xenophobia, if I don't know if that's the right word in English, if somebody correct me, you know, against Chinese people. But at the same time, you see the backlash that people have, have you know, have faced in terms of uh, 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 China and the treatment of Africans in China as well, which has been particularly horrible, particularly horrible as well. So no, no racist response to racism. You cannot respond to racism, you know, by being xenophobic yourself. I mean, and it brings back to the, the, to the question of what others were saying about the international movement and its, its necessity. I think that is hugely important and it's abso- absolutely, uh, ab- absolutely, ab- absolutely vital. And maybe, again, those are details that we should explore going forward. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Jechi. Um, I'm going to ask Talat to come in. I'm keen to hear what your thoughts are.
3: Okay, thank you. Um, I'll begin with the question about China first. Um, It's interesting what what Manny was saying about um, the geopolitics of China's involvement um, in the global south, because we certainly see that in the region of South Asia. Um, China is investing very deeply in Pakistan. Um, It's involved in all kinds of projects there, massive infrastructure projects, such as refuse collection, um, the whole thing about real estate, Um, It is Chinese money that is literally buying land, building for luxury apartments, office suites, and what have you. Um, Hotels are being built with Chinese money. So China is most definitely inside of um, of the region of South Asia and in Pakistan. And this, of course, is um, producing and and will continue to produce and contributes to further tensions between Pakistan and India. In the region. Um, tensions between China and India have been there over many decades going back to the 1950s particularly after independence um, over border issues to do with um, India and China and issues around Tibet um, and um, as a result we have a history inside of Pakistan um, where various governments both civilian and otherwise um, have um, looked towards China um, in terms of providing um, some kind of support and leverage by having a bigger power than India on its side. And of course, with the growth of the Chinese economy um, and the way that China is um, really sort of, I suppose, pushing its weight in different parts of the global south um, and making connections, then we certainly see that inside uh, inside of inside of Pakistan. Most people in Pakistan, it has to be said, um, are quite um, in favour of this kind of investment, mainly because it is appearing to provide um, some services, which they fear otherwise would not be provided. Um, But obviously, it's very important, um, certainly to my mind, as someone who works on this region, I'm very, very sensitive to how this is read in. in government circles inside of India, and also what this means in terms of the tensions between both India and Pakistan in terms of regional stability um, in that that part of the world. The question of um, international solidarity, and I'll probably just end on this one really. Um, Yes, the moment really is now. I mean, it's very interesting because um, I think the question also asked about climate change Um, last spring in India. Um, when it comes to Extinction Rebellion, there's um, a chapter of Extinction Rebellion that exists inside of India, um, and there were protests um, of people over um, climate change in India um, under the banner of Extinction Rebellion. Um, so those kinds of movements, not only um, you know, have we already seen them, but again, these movements have not gone away just because of COVID. Um, the Shaheen Bagh women's protest that uh, that I mentioned earlier. It's very interesting. I was in India um, in January and um, I was at a literature literature event. At that event, um, people were just outside of India, were just beginning to hear about this women's camp. And other international visitors who were at this event, it was very encouraging to hear speaker after speaker from platforms from different parts of Asia in particular, giving solidarity to the women at Shaheen Bahag and also some of them actually went to visit the camp in Delhi as well. So certainly the time is very ripe right now for movements like this to be nurtured, to develop and for us to make contacts um, because one way or the other whatever happens in the future with COVID we need to have an international fighting movement of solidarity to deal with the after effects of COVID.
0: Brilliant, thank you so much, Tala. That was fantastic. I've got um, our next round of questions. So thank you everybody for sending those in. It's really great. Um, So our first question comes from Irang um, who says, Hamza, can you elaborate more on the civil movement from below under the COVID-19 situation? What are the responses of the organized working class response to the crisis? Are there examples that you can share of collective action by workers? Our second question comes from Bridget, who says people are looking to a vaccine as the answer to COVID, but millions of people in Africa do not have access to current vaccines, e.g. for measles. How can we ensure that any vaccine when it is discovered is cheaply available worldwide? And our third and final question comes from Aisha. How can those in the Global North build solidarity with the Global South in the face of this crisis, but also more generally? Um, so those are our three questions. Got some more comments from you viewers and watching at home. Sally says really insightful and informative speakers. Absolutely agree with you, Sally. And Paul says the competition between US and China in Africa very revealing from Jechi. So that was absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm going to ask Talat to you to come back again on to
3: those questions. Okay, just the issue about uh, vaccine access. Um, I mean, yes, you you obviously do want to see a vaccine develop. Um, I suppose it's um, two things. One is that if um, a vaccine is discovered then first of all, um, it's really important to make sure that that should be available to everybody freely across the globe. And we will have to fight for that because it is not a given that it will be. And this really leads me to the second bit that's attached to this, which is, um, again, from previous experiences um, of a whole manner of of bad things that have happened in the world. Um, But we want to make sure that whatever kind of vaccines that there may be, that trial runs of them are not conducted on people in the global south first, because this has also been a systematic pattern of the way that um, pharmaceutical companies, um, the way that governments and medical advisors to them have a tendency to operate, whereby they think that um, if, um, if some kind of medical advance has being made, that the really what we have to do is to use the the developing world as the guinea pig to trial run these kinds of things. Uh, that is definitely also a no-no. You know, the global south is not the playground for big international medical foundations to think and uh, governments to think that they can somehow experiment like this. We do want a lasting vaccine that is what we are all hoping for and we want to make sure it's something which is going to be completely safe and something which is completely secure and something that really is to the benefit of everyone across the world and that it is something that should be available freely um, and that no country should be charged for this um, just the question about building solidarity again i mean i think that you know for us here um, in the west It's a really great question. Um, I think it's very important. I mean, this day and age, given that um, there's so much activity um, on Zoom and on social media, uh, which has been incredibly valuable. This is also a way, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry about this. Ignore my phone, (laughs) going in the background. Um, That that we should, um, we are able to connect with people across the globe. Um, and um, and therefore also to find out what is happening in different parts of the planet um, in terms of resistance movements, in terms of issues that are taking place. Um, certainly in terms of India, um, on social media, there are still people who are having discussion posts about both Shaheen Bagh, but also about protest movements against the Modi government for its various policies. Um, And this is something that, again, um, we in the West are able to contribute to. I think having forums like this are incredibly important as well, because it's something that allows voices from across the world to be brought into people's living rooms um, so that people are able to share ideas, share experiences. And one of the things that I found very interesting about this panel is that listening to the other two speakers Um, and you know being British myself and knowing what the situation is here is just how common some of the experiences are about COVID um, and the injustices across the globe so I think that's also something that we should bear in mind.
0: Brilliant thank you very much Tala I definitely agree with you that Forms like these are so important. I know I find this very, very interesting. It's been great so far. Um, I'm going to call in Hansa. Hansa, could you come back on? Um, I know that question was for you about Algeria. Can you that come could back on me. some of those?
2: Yes, I'll try in um, the little time that I have. Um, so, when the lockdown, uh, when the COVID 19 pandemic, the news around it started circulating. Um, The Algerian protesters were really suspicious of the authorities' call to stop all public gatherings. So in a way, they continued protesting after the first anniversary of the uprising, that that was on 22nd of February. Um, And they were saying in a way, better to have corona than to have you. But then calls of wisdom prevailed and the movement stopped its weekly protests on friday and tuesday so the student movement was was doing its protests on tuesday but then as i said that energy and that creativity did not disappear especially in the midst of the inability of the regime to counteract the 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 pandemic especially that the health sector in algeria has been hollowed by decades of neoliberal structuring and underfunding and attempts to to, to privatize. So we've seen a lot of creative actions coming from the youth, from um, uh, civil society. Uh, First, we've seen public awareness campaigns um, from the youth and from the students raising awareness about the disease. We've seen campaigns of solidarity and caravans of solidarity actually people going to the epicenter of the disease in Algeria, which was Blida, um, which is in the north, north center part of Algeria, going there and taking food and taking things to help the people that have been in complete, in complete lockdown. We've seen also online on, uh, social media campaigns to keep the flame of the uprising going and saying, we're gonna come back, especially in a context of intensifying repression. Um, we've seen the Algerian authorities um, jailing and, um, and harassing a lot of journalists and activists, um, it you see. When it comes to, to, to the workers and to the unions, uh, I really, really encourage you to read um, the research report that I've talked about, released by the MENA Solidarity um, Center, and you can find it online that we talked about the role of the trade unions during the Hiraq. So there are a lot of complexities in there because there is the pro-regime trade union, um, which, which is not at all serving the interests of the workers. And you have autonomous trade unions that have been in the Hiraq since day one, organizing their own protests. But as you all know, with all trade unions, there are some contradictions. Um, within those. So I encourage you to read to read that report. Regarding the question around the solidarity between the global north and global south, I think Talat touched on a very important point, which is the necessity of free and universal availability of the drugs and the vaccines. And we need to really fight for that um, in, in, in order to allow to disallow um, the profits of the big, the big multinationals, other ways that we can do is to support calls coming from the global South and including the region I come from, North Africa and the Middle East. There are calls to cancel the debts and to cancel the free trade agreements, and we need definitely to support those. because continuing to pay debts at the right at this time, is just inhumane. Because those resources need to go to safeguarding people's health, to helping them in these these very difficult times. And also one one last point is um, around solidarity is to emphasize the voices of resistance. Because people are not just passive victims. They resist against injustices. And we need always to bring those voices to the global stage and be in solidarity with them.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Hamza. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to ask um, for Jetty to come in and do our last final round of questions. Thank you.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you very much. And to uh, Hamza and Talat as well. And I think that uh, the, just to emphasize the the question of uh, the intellectual property regime around pharmaceutical companies and so on, it's particularly important, the point that Talat made about, you know, parts of the global South and their populations being used as guinea pigs and so on. And also as, uh, you know, the, 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 the map around which uh, monopolies are established within different markets. And it's not simply about the private companies and what we've seen them do, for example, Pfizer in Nigeria, in northern Nigeria around polo, polio vaccinations, you know, thousands of children uh, 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 damaged. Or some of you might remember John Le Carre's book, The Constant Gardener. About tests in uh, in Kenya and so on. Or the or you might have seen the two French scientists who were openly discussing a few weeks ago about you know as casually as if you know discussing the the weather about testing on Africans and so on. So those are real things, and it's not simply as I said about the uh, the private companies. The biggest U.S. Department of Defense laboratories outside of the United States are in Africa, in, in places like Egypt and so on. And these are people who do tests on almost every pathogen, every virus, everything that is going using a lot of uh, 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 bilateral exchanges to to rope in local populations for their sample testing and so on, as well as give give American companies a head start in terms of patents, in terms of pharmaceutical markets and so on. You see that happening again in the case of uh, China, Chinese companies. You see that happening in Germany's tropical health Uh, And Britain, which has fallen back because of its own disinvestment in tropical health research, is trying to find a way back, to claw back into this position. And sometimes it takes on, you know, almost ludicrous proportions. When Donald Trump said that on the basis of, uh, you know, stories out of Wuhan, for example, that uh, uh, hydrochloroquine was part of the the cocktail that was being used to treat patients in Wuhan and so on. And Donald Trump seized on that. I don't know where he got that information from and says, you know, it's a miracle drug. Many, many things happened you know, all of a sudden the black market in hydrochloroquine manufacture in Africa boomed. And at the same time, there were complaints about the fact that the local pharmaceutical industries had been shattered precisely for the reasons that Hamza talked about, because of the international free trade agreements and so on. So you have two processes going on. On the one hand, a demand that, the production capacities that empower society and productive, uh, 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 give employment, productive employment to people ought to be targeted at, at, the, at, the, at the health emergencies that we face. That's perfectly correct. But to do so under conditions of private property and, and, and profiteering, as we can see, whether it's global or local, you have all manner, all manner of, 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 of distortions. And it is in this sense that the resistance that people are talking about is particularly important. I did mention that the frontline role that health workers have played, the length and breadth of Africa. And sometimes it doesn't simply mean them standing on their own. In countries like South Africa, for example, you see, you see broad coalitions beginning to emerge. Our comrades in Nigeria, for example, are deeply involved in a broad coalition involving you know, health workers, involving community activists, and, and, and so on and so forth. And those are models, those are examples that everybody can learn from, and everybody can uh, you know, try, try to develop according to their circumstances. And again, the things that people have touched upon, Climate change, if you take East Africa, for example, a perfect storm. You have floods, followed by droughts. I saw a picture of a riverbed in Kenya, Northern Kenya, Northwestern Kenya yesterday. Totally dry, as if it, it hasn't rained there for a decade. Four days ago, that place was absolutely flooded. Now, this is a place which a week ago was being hit by locusts and so on. And then, so you have this, this you know, if you like perfect storm, locusts devastating agricultural produce in, in, in East Africa and all kinds of vegetation, flooding in the Lake Victoria area, you know, across the, and across the, the, the region, you saw the, 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 the cyclones in India and so on. There's a whole range of issues that are happening that activate, animate all kinds of people who are committed to fight for change. And this is the moment to try and bring them together in increasing elements of, of United, United Action. The climate activists, those who are about food security, those who are about jobs and livelihoods and so on. And again, I have to say this is where socialists in particular have a particular responsibility and a unique contribution to make. Socialists have this kind of contribution to make precisely because of their understanding, first and foremost, about where all wealth in the world comes from. That every good, every service is produced by ordinary working people. And that those those same ordinary working people, if they have the the power and decision-making over that process, whether they are on furlough, whether they are at home in terms of stay in place, uh, lockdown; down, whether they are out there working uh, you know, to deliver essential services, they, they will take care of their needs collectively because that's how, how always working people survive and that's what they do. But at the same time, if you do, they're, not, uh, they're not in charge of these resources, they're not in charge of the decision-making, they are played off one against the other. And the divisions that we, we see can rapidly arise, like Talat was, was, was describing in the case of you know, uh, Islamophobia in, uh, in, uh, in uh, India. We see that in Africa all the time. I mentioned Malawi and, and the strikes that nurses have, 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 have embarked on. But that strike wave was hit and reversed when an election was declared when an election was declared, even the, the, the physical distancing went, went out of the window because all the partisanship and the reach of the populists into the, into the townships and so on and so forth meant that you know all kinds of things that could have happened and bring working people together began to unravel. The same situation in Burundi where the entire World Health Organization office has been closed down and people have been uh, uh, you know, expelled so that an election can be held. And so I'm trying to say, all kinds of divisions can take place. And when you have the kind of fluidity the kind of wild, you know, uh, the, the kind of reserve armies of labor that have to scramble for, for survival. It be, some people might find it difficult to see how this cross-class interest can be solidified. But socialists, that, this is our bread and butter. We start from that understanding. And that is why I referred uh, 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 at the beginning of the, of the conversation to what socialists internationally have always done link the issues against racism, link the issues for women's liberation, link the issues against the different sectional or potentially divisive identities together as, as, as class questions. That's what we have to do in Africa. That's what we have to do internationally. When the World Trade Organization says we're going to develop new disciplines to ensure that medical supplies also become the subject of neoliberal rules. We know how to combat that. When, the, when, when, the, when people say climate change has to be postponed all livelihoods have to be sac- sacrificed, we know how to, to combat that. But the critical factor I say, I, I'm insisting on is class unity, putting the composite and comprehensive needs of the class first, nat- uh, 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 internationally and, lo- and locally, and, and doing so around an understanding of where the strategic uh, you know, uh, flashpoints are, the strategic ways in which I, uh, uh, there's an overlap between community and workplace take place. My final point is, is, is to use an example in Ghana. A couple of weeks ago, we had one of the biggest the multinational uh, fishing companies in Africa, and anybody who wants to understand how you know the whole agro-food chain and its inequalities, as well as its pathological effects, there's a recent article in the Financial Times about fishing in West Africa. I think it's a couple of weeks ago. Please go back and read it; it will give you a fair idea of where you know whether it is you know, poultry and whether it is uh, you know pigs and African swine fever, or whether it is fishing. You know that whole natural resource agro-food chain is central, and, and I just want to refer people to that. Here in Ghana, just down the road in the industrial city next, next to Accra here, in Tamil, which is also a port city, you've had one of the biggest uh, uh, you know, fish processing factories, 533 workers declared, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, have been infected by the coronavirus. This is a company which was a multi- was belong- taken over by some, I think, some Thai, uh, some multinational company in Thailand and so on and so forth. This is, a, this, is a, this is a company where socialists were key in building union because it's a, a special economic zone or economic process economic free zone factory. Socialists have been working there for decades, including colleagues of ours, comrades of ours who built the union. They, they fought against flexibilization when the workforce was feminized. And on that basis, the union was, was weakened. They have been splits in the union. They're still splits in the, in the union today. The, the, these people were treated so badly. Many of them sent home, whether the overlap between communities and the workplace infection, the overlap between the the supply chain, which involves fish markets and and the factories, and so on, We we don't actually even fully know. The point I'm trying to make is that if you have a constellation of struggle, of resistance, of consciousness, of network and organizing, that combines the spine of the factory with its strategic location, with its strategic power, with its structural and organizational features, with the market, with the communities and so on, you stand a better chance you stand a better chance of engaging the the, the unity that I'm talking about locally, you stand a better chance of extending that with with a worldview around the fisheries and the global supply chain sector and so on. And this is where I think socialists in what we do is is important. Uh, Combating of identity politics in its worst and sectional forms are positing uh, at all times of the unity and, 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 and the primary role of organized workers at the center of uniting people left, right and center. From that point of view, I think internationally, those in the global North, you really have to step up a lot of what you're doing. already. Tala did mention that uh, discussions like this are primary; they're important. The global that organisations like Socialist Workers Party and other left organisations play crucial and, and, and vital, and that must continue. And that must continue in the same way that is not simply about the different sections, but it's about uniting the struggles, the, the anti-racist struggles, the, the struggles against Islamophobia, the struggles against you know the the, the, the stronghold, the the the, the, the that uh, you know uh, 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 you know. Uh, 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 companies have in terms of the privatization of the the NHS or whichever way it is and I think those are the examples that we ought to share those are the inspirations that we ought to draw from each other those are the new lessons around which you know we we can develop fresh ideas that can help uh, ordinary people make make, uh, you know good sense out of sometimes the misleading common sense that we are sold from the pulpits from the preachers from the imams from the government from the politicians uh, and so on and so forth and I think the world now really there's everything to win there's everything to lose The stakes are very high and socialists have a crucial, crucial role to play, as do all labor, uh, working class activists and all activists for social justice in the world. So solidarity necessary, as the comrades have said. Is it possible? Absolutely. And we have a special role in that. And that's where we should start from. Thank you
0: fantastic thank you solidarity indeed um i just want to say a massive massive thank you to all our speakers it was absolutely brilliant thank you so much for taking your time um to come and join us today um i'd like to say a thank you to all those watching at home for taking your time to come and watch these um like talat said these meetings these forums are so so important so it's great that um you guys continue to watch on a weekly basis fantastic Um, i just have two short quick announcements to make the first one as We know it's trying times for businesses across the world, but especially independent small businesses. And we are asking that you continue to support um, a great bookshop, Bookmarks Bookshop, the Socialist Bookstore, an independent bookstore um, in these times. So it's no, we're in quarantine, we're at home. A lot of us have a little bit more time. And so if you can afford, and you are thinking about expanding your knowledge in books and um, finding things to read, um, we're just asking if you make sure that you go to Bookmarks, they are running a very efficient service online um, and order your books from there. Um, It'd be absolutely fantastic um, and really greatly appreciated. So if you need some books, if you're looking to get some new material to read, make sure that you're heading to Bookmarks. Um, And the second thing, if you've enjoyed this meeting, if you resonated with anything that's being said today, like Hamza said, we are not passive victims of what is going on. This is a great, it's a trying time, but this is a really great time For resistance, it's a really good time for building our confidence and fighting against the ruling class. Things are happening every single day. People are angry, but we have a method, we have a direction, we have a source to put that anger to. And it's really important that we continue to build our communities and we continue to fight on. And I ask that you join the Socialist Workers' Party. This is just a small glimpse of the things that we do all across the world as you can see um but it's really important that you come and join us in this fight movements are made out of people and we need ordinary fighting working class people who are fed up of what's going on in the world to come and join us so i really do um ask you if you can click the link that's on the bottom of wherever you're watching or just head to our socialist workers um at web page you'll find a joining form um, that's it for me i wish you all a lovely rest of your weekend thank you for joining us once again thank you to our speakers once again
3: bye Thanks for listening. If you'd like to read more, you can find up to date articles at socialistworker.co.uk. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to join the Socialist Workers' Party or find out more about us, you can
0: go to swp.org.uk. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find
3: us on facebookcom Socialist Workers' Party, on Twitter at SWP Britain, Instagram at socialist underscore workers underscore party, and you can subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast sites, including Spotify. Deezer, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker and iTunes.